Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Lee's In Context. It's a great day today on In Context because we have our friend Dr. George Barna back on the program. I'm reading through Barna's CV or veto, whatever you want to call it, and I go, how in the world do I condense talking about Dr. Barna? Let me give you some of the highlights, and I'm going to give you my personal story. So Dr. Barna has kind of established himself in a unique niche in that he does research on topics primarily for the Christian. Early in his career, he was not necessarily the flavor of the month for a lot of Christians because he upset the apple cart a little bit. He's published 60 books and counting, thousands of research projects he has been commissioned to do and also does on his own. We'll have information about the Barna Group as well as uh, his newer relationship. We'll talk about that in a moment with Arizona Christian College. He's an interesting indicator because he's done something like a Gallup poll, but not quite like that. And we'll talk more about that. He's got two master's degrees from Rutgers, his undergrad from Boston, and a PhD from DBU, also known as Dallas Baptist University. In recent years, the Barna Group has expanded. He is the director of research and cultural research at University of Arizona, Christian University, and we'll talk more about that as well. Dr. John Hand and I were talking the other day on the phone, George. I was opining the culture and the church today, and I've been in ministry in one way or another, 43 plus years, and I'm beyond discouraged with the local church. Hannah made a comment that set me on my heels. She goes, Michael, we were educated in a time that no longer exists. I was driving in the car and I leaned back and I went, that just dismantles me because the way we were trained for a biblical worldview, the value of scripture, it seems gone, George, and I have become a little bit depressed in recent years. So before we talk about one of your newest books, Raising Spiritual Champions, give me a kind of an opener here. What are we doing with the worldview and culture, and are Christians asleep, or are we... I mean, you're the expert. Give me a pulse on what's happened to us, and how do we get in this mess? Michael, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we believed that Christians were devoted followers of Christ. And the reality is that when you probe in enough areas of a person's faith and lifestyle, their mindset, their heart set, their relationships, their values, all of those things which we consistently measure, what you find is that when we in America say, I'm a Christian, we don't mean the same thing that Jesus meant. We don't mean the same thing that the Bible teaches. We tend to veer more toward what does the culture accept as a definition of a Christian. And in America in 2023, to be a Christian is interpreted by most Americans to mean, I'm a good person. I feel good about myself. I mean well. I have good intentions. I do my best when it serves me to do so. That's what being a Christian is. And sometimes when I have the opportunity, I'll go to church. I own a Bible. I pray. I don't know if there's a God that hears and responds, but I think it's my responsibility to pray. And that's how it works. And that characterizes roughly 65% of American adults. Then you got another 3 to 5% who are more along the lines of what Jesus called his disciples. You know, people who 
look at the six ways that Jesus defined discipleship in his teaching, and they really commit themselves to trying to be in line with that, in harmony with that teaching. So when we say, oh, you know, it's a Christian nation, it's like, you know, pass that bong over here, okay? Because there's no way that we can make that argument with a straight face. So I think that's a lot of what's happening. Now we've got two generations that have come up, the millennials, what's called Gen Z, and they were never really taught the things that at least boomers had exposure to, builders bought into. Mm -hmm. So with each succeeding generation, we've been losing our connection to that original idea of what a disciple is. And now you've got Gen Z who doesn't own Bibles, doesn't go to church, doesn't know why they should, doesn't believe there is a God, and so on and so forth. And we wonder, well, how can this be? They're in a Christian nation. No, no, they're not. We haven't been in a Christian nation, if we've ever been in one, for a real long Mm -hmm. time. So we just need to recognize that and change our assumptions and based on that, change our behaviors. I remember early when I was in seminary and then the first couple of churches I served, we lamented the lack of individuals who understood how to share Christ. And we grossly failed at making disciples. Churches focused on growth, on building programs, a lot of good things. It wasn't bad stuff. One church I served with had 112 ministries, and I often thought, on one hand, that's phenomenal. On the other, what are we doing? I would often push back and say, are we making disciples? And how do you measure that? And boy, that was upsetting you know, to ask that question to staff and volunteers because they like their programs. And sure, there's what we call organic ministry along the way where you're you know, in a, a choir, orchestra, youth group, and you're doing things, and sure, you have those conversations. But as far as an intentional, let's meet in a home for two years and study scripture and think about theology and talk about your marriage and your family and your parenting, and that just doesn't seem to happen anymore in the local church, George. We're focused on buildings, on programs, on streaming. Again, I'm just prattling here, but you're the expert. Well, and if I could respond to that just real quick. I hope you would. You brought up a lot of hot buttons there. I I tend to do that. Yeah, 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 which is a great thing. (laughs) Rather than give me cold buttons, it's like, yeah, I got got nothing. Yeah. You know, so you look at your 112 ministries, and question number one is, but what's the vision for the ministry? And if you have a true leader— the currency of a true leader is vision. The currency of a true Christian leader is God's vision. Not my vision, it's his vision. Which means, first of all, he needs to call me to that ministry, and he only calls me there because he knows that I'm the right person to accomplish what he has in mind for those people in that place at this time. So our research shows that There are very, very few single digits across the country, senior Mm -hmm. pastors in Christian churches of any flavor who actually have taken the time, made the effort, have an understanding of, and are in pursuit of God's vision for that ministry. So number one, what are they pursuing? Their vision. What do I care what your vision is? Yeah. You know, who are you? So if you weren't called there and you're not pursuing God's vision, that means your priorities are going to be wrong. And then a second issue that we can look at, and you raised this, has to do with measurement. 
you know, more than 80% of the senior pastors that we talk to tell us that their churches are effective, they're growing, they're doing what they were called to do. And we ask, you know, we say, well, that's great. You know, just tell us how you know that. How do you measure it? Because you get what you measure. And the five factors that most of them point out are things that, yes, they're growing in those five areas, but Jesus didn't die for any of those. You know, numerical growth, uh, number of programs growing, amount of money given, number of staff hired and square footage built out. Those are the five things that our surveys show senior pastors across the country for the most part, are relying on to determine whether or not they have a a healthy and growing ministry, as they would put it. So, you know, they're getting what they're measuring. They're just measuring the wrong things. And then you mentioned small groups. I mean, there is a big thrust for churches to rally around the teaching of the senior pastor, who, as I mentioned, in most cases is not a leader— so they are, in most cases, actually a teacher. They're gifted as teachers. They've been called to teach. Mm-hmm. But what the, the local church becomes is let's sit down and take notes, and then let's meet at somebody's house every week or every other week, and let's talk about what the pastor said, as opposed to let's dig into God's Word and figure out what God said, and let's try to figure out how we're relating to that in our life. So once again, we're six steps removed from the truth. And then you talk about marriage and parenting. You bring that up, and don't get me going on that soapbox, but you know, part of the research for this new book, Raising Spiritual Champions, is all about what are parents doing with their kids. If we're not on track now, the only way we're going to get on track is to get our children on the right track. And part of the disconnect there, and we can talk about it more, but it's the fact that only 2% of the parents of children under 13 have a biblical worldview. You can't give what you don't have. And secondly, when we ask them, what are your priorities as a parent? What is it you want to accomplish in and through the life of your child? Spiritual development, spiritual formation, discipleship, biblical worldview, none of that is it shows up toward, yeah. toward the top of the list. There are some parents oh. who pursue that, but it's a very very small percentage. And even with most of those parents, it's secondary to things like the kind of college I want to get them in, the kind of grades they need to have, the SAT scores, you know, their performance on the ball field, how good they are at playing violin or whatever. There's a whole other list of priorities that we're looking at, health and happiness being toward the top of the list, Mm -hmm. and spiritual health and connection with God really not making the radar. Let me take a really hard right turn and ask a question because you brought up Gen Z. I'm convinced that these devices are a big negative contribution to how they don't buy books. It's not even a tablet anymore, George. It's the phone. So the amount of information from a neurosynaptic, neuroplasticity ability to look at a screen, the endorphin hits of moving around in it, if they're reading the Bible, that's what they're doing. And it's like, what happened to the pen and paper and Bible interaction? I quit doing it because it was almost condescending. I would say, open your Bibles to Philippians 4, or if you're a cheater, click on your device. And there'd be a little tittering, and occasionally I'd say, you need to have a physical Bible, and I'd hold up, i go, this is a pen. You ever seen one? It's called a pen. You can buy it at the office supply or online. And, you know, I quit doing it for obvious reasons, but 
your thoughts on that because education is so different now than when you and as John Hanna said, we were educated in a time that no longer exists. So when you introduce technology, which is wonderful, I mean, log off software, I live with it. But okay, there's about five ideas I threw at you. And then I do want to talk about your book. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. I, I love going through all this. You're the guru, man. Come yeah. on, help me out. Uh, we're in trouble there. But when you look at you know what you were describing as how people interact with and treat and think about the Bible, it's no longer considered to be a book of truth. And to some extent, our churches have facilitated that by saying, you know what, it's all about stories. It's all about stories. Oh, we got to tell them. Don't stories. get me started. Yeah. And so, you know, if you don't have a story, they're not going to pay attention. It's like, well, wait a minute. If you're a teacher, which is what you tell me God called you to do and he's actually gifted you to do, then you know one of the things that you do as a teacher is you change people from what they're coming in with to what they're going out with. And so maybe stories are good and they're helpful, they're useful, they're interesting, but they're just one tool. They're not the whole game. So don't keep telling the same 20 stories over and over and over. And there's value to repetition. Every good teacher knows right. that. I'm not discounting that. But there's a lot more to the scriptures than, you know, Jonah and the whale, you know, Daniel and the lion's den, you know, our favorite stories, 20 stories. And you cannot allow, much less teach your people, to hopscotch through the Bible just picking out what they consider to be God's greatest hits. Because everybody's going to come up with their own expressions and phrases and verses that they like the most without having any idea how any of it fits together, yeah. which is what a worldview does, is it ties together these things into a consistent way of experiencing and interpreting and responding to the world. And so when we look at America today, realize that only 4% of American adults have a biblical worldview. 92% of them have embraced syncretism without knowing yeah. what that is or ever hearing of it as their dominant worldview. And all that means is we can't even stop long enough to get through any worldview and say, yes, I'm going to embrace all of this, whether it's Marxism, postmodernism, secular humanism, Eastern mysticism, you know, Satanism. I mean, you know, pick your worldview and we're just not willing to take the whole thing lock, stock and barrel because that would require us to sit there and read through the whole thing think through it, and tie these connections together. Mm -hmm. So instead, what we do is we just pick the greatest hits of all these different worldviews, that's what syncretism is, and we customize our worldview because it makes us feel good, it makes us feel happy. It's all about feelings rather than truth. And mm -hmm. so then you look at our culture and the extreme mess that we're in right now, where we don't know if anybody tells the truth anymore, when they do, we don't know how to discern it because we don't have teachers who are constantly bringing us back to the source of truth, the definition of truth, and the right. application of truth. And when you lose that, you've lost everything. You're going to live in total chaos and corruption, which is increasingly what we see in America. We're pretty well there. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the church is not doing us any favors by... Going back to what you opened the program talking about how I wasn't the flavor of the month for a long time, 
it's because I talked about a lot of things people didn't want to hear. Yeah. And one of those things is, you know what? Marketing is good. It can be a useful tool, but you can't compromise certain principles. And the principles we can never compromise in order to market ourselves better are God's principles. And churches have done exactly that. That's why we're in the mess. They are yeah. no longer the solution to the absence of truth in our culture. I think the first book I read about, I know it was, was Frog in the Kettle. It was so exposing and revealing people are like, ooh, you know, we're guilty of this at so many layers. And I do appreciate your tenacity because at the end of the day, I was always against the term story, the overuse of narrative, the pastor that would go up on the mountain and come back with his or her vision for the church. And I go, wait, we don't have to go pray. The vision is the mandate of Jesus Christ, make disciples of all ethnos. The commands are clear, love God and love man. You can read any of the pastorals and go, there's a pretty good vision right there for the local church. But again, the devaluing of seminary, the devaluing of exposition, the devaluing of scripture, we could go on. Let me make a hard left turn. Talk about worldview. We hear that a lot. What does it mean? How do we understand it, George? Yeah, every person has a worldview. So this isn't an esoteric academic conversation at this point. I hope people stick with us. This is hugely important. You know, one of the things that I go around teaching at this point is that America doesn't have an economic crisis. It doesn't have a family crisis. It doesn't have a border crisis. What we have is a worldview crisis. And if we got our worldview together, all those other issues would take mm. care of themselves because we could be going back to God's truth to figure out where we stand with all of these things. And it all makes sense, but we don't do that. So what is a worldview if we all have it? Why do we have one? Well, we have one because basically it's the mindset, the heart set that enables us to make sense of everything that takes place around us and why we're in the midst of those things. Who am I? Why am I here? Is there a greater power than me or am I it? You know, there are a lot of key questions that a worldview addresses. Those questions are all so important that what we found is that by the age of 13 in America, it's different in every country, wow. by the age of 13, every American has their worldview set. Now, during our teens and 20s, we tinker with it, we refine it, we figure out how to articulate it and apply it, but it's basically mostly what we came up with during those formative years before we hit the teen years where we were trying to figure out, how am I going to get through the day? How am I going to represent who I am and feel right about myself? How am I going to do what I think I'm made to do, whether that's a God-given understanding or an internal, you know, welling up kind of understanding? That's all worldview stuff. Is there a truth? What is it? How do I find it? What do I do with it? All that kind of stuff is worldview. So when we measure this, there are a lot of different dimensions to worldview. Because you're looking at morals, you're looking at values, you're looking at truth, you know, and the, the source of truth. You're looking at faith, you're looking at lifestyle. All of that comes back because worldview is made up of beliefs and behavior. And it's important to measure both of those. We're the only company that consistently measures worldview. There are a few that irregularly measure it. We're the only one that looks at behavior as well as beliefs. Why do we do that? Because my contention is you do what you believe. Sure. So what we have are a lot of people who say, oh, I believe in God. 
you know, but then when you start to measure their behaviors, nah, I don't think so. You know, oh, I believe the Bible is, you know, God's word and that it's true and it's relevant and it's reliable. You look at their behavior, not really, because you do what you believe. If you really believe it, you're going to follow through on that. Otherwise, you operate your lifestyle as an exercise in constant cognitive dissonance. You're always uncomfortable. You're always anxious. You're always confused. You're always in a state of chaos because you can't put it all together. And so what a worldview does is it helps you to figure out, yes, how can I actually live according to what I truly believe and who I think I truly am? Let me interrupt for a second. You talk about cognitive dissonance. You and I know people that have integrated a sinful attitude and action and call themselves Christians. They live in that with no cognitive dissonance, George. It seems like, I mean, let's take, if you take same-sex attraction or adultery or pornography or I always use the money, sex, and power umbrellas that we all have a tendency to be pulled to one of those. A lot of people seem to be fine and dandy living a life contrary to very clear scriptural teaching. Absolutely true. And there are a number of reasons for that. One of those, you know, when you say they're living contrary to biblical teaching, we did a number of studies on this years ago, and we stopped doing the studies. They're too depressing. But mm. basically what we discovered is, yeah, people break the Ten Commandments, as an example, all the time. And one of the reasons why is they don't know what the Ten Commandments are. They don't even realize that they're operating in uh, disharmony with what God says will help us to thrive and succeed and enjoy life, much less honor Him. Even if you're just going at it as a narcissist, you'd want to do the things that God says, do this and you will thrive. Yeah, but nah. In, in a narcissistic sort of way. Yeah, yeah, very much. <laughs> and we've got another issue, which goes, I think, even a little bit deeper, which is not only don't people know what the Bible teaches, most Americans at this point in our history do not believe in the concept of sin. Wow. And so when we say, but you're offending God, you're breaking the rules that God has given to you in order to honor him and glorify him and do his will. It's like, well, why would I want to do that? But I'm not hurting anybody, George. I'm not hurting anyone. Yeah, and what we often hear, I'm being true to myself. Oh, God. Yeah, well, bully for you. You're going to pay between, for that. Between stories and true to myself and following my passion, I want to cough up a hairball. <laughs> Golly. Yeah, so we've got all of that. And then we've got the people who mean well, they go to church more often than others. They probably open the Bible more often than others. And their whole thing is, oh, I know, I do sin. It's not good. But, you know, God loves me. He'll always forgive me. Have you asked him to do that? Have you asked him to, you know, send his Holy Spirit into your heart, and your soul, and your mind to help you to transform repent? you? Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, Yankees are doing pretty well. You know, I mean, it's like, let's change that topic. I don't want to go there. You know, so we, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many different levels on which we've found what we think is an out clause that we don't really take what the Bible says seriously, even when somebody explains it to us. Oh, goodness. Let's talk a little bit about, you kind of touched on it already, but churches get blamed for a lot. I'm always careful because I consider myself a churchman. And a church can't do everything, 
my focus, right or wrong, was you know exposition and getting people's nose in the book. I had this internal thing, George, God's word, God's spirit, God's people, that you need constant exposure to his word, submission to his spirit, and be around other people that are going in the same direction. That's the bottom line to me. Apart from that, ostensibly, programs or activities, there are distractions. That there might be some good in them, but I remember years ago, there was a very loud voice on Christian radio, and he routinely blamed the church for everything, for the culture, not voting, school system, school board. And it was like, wait a minute, I understand a piece of that, but the church's role is only so much. And that's why I went back to discipleship. If we're not discipling, I don't really care. Again, I've opened too many cans of worms there, but... If you can see my note sheet, you can I, yeah, I see you writing going easily like off point, over again. Yeah. Easily's crazy here. What do I do to this poor guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just briefly respond to you know the church can't do it all. You're totally right. The church is not meant to do it all. There, first of all, there's no place in Scripture that talks about the local church the way we've configured it. So oh. if it doesn't exist in that form. It can't be the culprit, okay? But what does exist under the label of church is a community of people that come together consistently to worship God together, to learn about God together, to encourage each other, to serve other people together. Yes, that's the church that Jesus died on the cross for, okay? Not an institution, not a building, not a denomination, not all the other stuff. Those aren't necessarily bad. But that's not the biblical focus that we should put our energy into. So what does it say we're supposed to do? Jesus made it really clear. You know, final words, great commission, go make disciples. If that's what we're supposed to do when we come together as a community, how do we do that? Well, all we can do is to equip and encourage and send. And if we do that, should we be good with the church doing that and measuring how well we're doing at that? You would yeah, think. We could yeah. Because who makes disciples? Disciples make disciples. So when we come together, let's make sure that we're doing what we can to have everybody there be a disciple because we can figure that out. And whatever deficiencies there are, we can address those. And then once we've addressed that, send them out. It's not about the number of people who are showing up, it's not about the reputation in the community of the institution, it's about the individuals who are Christ-like, who are going out to help other people become like Jesus. So we've lost the focus. Let's get some hope in this conversation. How do we raise spiritual champions? This is the title of your new book. How do you help your kids and grandchildren at our age get on track so that the world isn't squeezing them into their mold? There are a number of things that we found going on and some that need to take place that aren't taking place. Certainly one of the things that you've got to do if you want to raise your kids to be disciples of Jesus, you've got to make a commitment to do that. Most parents haven't made that commitment. The idea is, you know, uh, they'll figure it out. Well, no, they won't. And so when you look at your task as a parent or even a grandparent, single most important thing you can do with your life isn't to you know, get the golden watch on retirement day or to have the biggest house on the block or, you know, to have two Porsches in the driveway. It's to make disciples of the people in your family. If you can't get it done there, you're not going to get it done elsewhere. 
And so start to focus on that, make that commitment. And it doesn't happen by default. It doesn't happen because you have happy thoughts about discipleship. It happens because you have a plan. So you've got to think this through very strategically, and then you've got to act very consistently in concert with a good plan. And so, you know, once you do that, then what do you do? Then it's about doing everything you can to introduce foundational biblical principles to children before they reach the age of 13, the younger, the better. Always be talking, you know, go back to Deuteronomy 6, which is one of my favorite passages about family, because it talks about, you know what, what we do from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed, whether we're in the home meeting, whether we're on the road going to work, whether we're working around the house, whether we're at work, we're talking about the things of God. We're thinking about the things of God. We're evaluating each other based on the principles of God. It's always about God and his ways. And so when we get those biblical principles in front of our kids, there are a lot of things I talk about in the book about how to do that, how important that is. But then you've got to make sure that it gets converted into proper behavior. And one of the things that I discovered in doing all the research for the book, we did seven original research projects for this book, really expensive and took two years, but I think it was worth it because of the things that we learned about what is and is not going on. And one of the things that we found is that if you want kids to not only learn the ideas, the concepts, the principles, but then you want them to convert them into a lifestyle, a consistent biblical lifestyle that only happens when you model it for them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we learned in the research is that today, even though parents have the second best opportunity to influence the lifestyle, the values, the beliefs of their children, they're not doing it. They're not modeling it. And what children have interpreted that as is, you know what? I'm here trying to figure out how life works. And so I'm watching my parents trying to get a clue And when I watch them, what happens is they say one thing and they do another. Mm. So I guess my parents are just as confused as I am. I guess they're not the role model I ought to be watching. And that's why arts and entertainment media actually now have more influence on the worldview development of children than parents do. Because when kids who spend about 10 hours a day absorbing media messages. 10 hours a day. Yeah. Well, it depends on the age range. That's an average of all the you know, two to 13 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. I'd heard six, but it's up to 10 now. Goodness. Yeah. Six is for like four to six year olds, you know, are taking in that much. Let's say 10 hours a day on average for kids in that vital range. And why do they pay attention to that and buy into it? Because when they watch a half hour TV show, they watch a five minute streamed program on their phone. They listen to a three minute song. They watch a 90 minute movie. Every one of those media vehicles Typically, and we did content analysis on the most popular kids' media, I can tell you what they're teaching. I can tell you how they teach it. What we know is that they are incredibly consistent. If they start out wanting to teach you Marxism in their 90-minute movie, for 90 minutes, what you're going to get is Marxism. You're not going to get a whole lot of biblical worldview. You're not going to get a lot of secular humanism. You're not going to get a lot of postmodernism. You're not going to get a lot of Eastern mysticism. You're going to get Marxism. You know, and the same thing with any of those worldviews. And in Hollywood, New York, where all this crap is coming from, those are the worldviews that dominate. A biblical worldview is very rare. So this is the difficulty that we've got. Parents have to be very intentional, 
very strategic and very consistent in what they're going to do. And in the end, like we were talking about before, they got to measure how they're doing. Don't just assume because they mean well, they, they did their best, that it's working. It's our job as parents and grandparents to evaluate, is what I'm doing working in my child's or grandchild's life or the neighbor's child's life, or the kids who I'm coaching in their life, whatever opportunity we have to influence kids, kind of measure it. If it's not working, change your strategy. You uh, write, the inescapable conclusion, of course, is they cannot give what they do not possess. Therefore, most Christian churches are filled with adults who are not receiving teaching that would point them to thinking biblically. The big picture is actually a bit worse because others who fill the pulpits, associate pastors, teaching pastors, are less likely to have a biblical worldview. With the biblical worldview incidence of 28% and 13% respectively, and I want you to talk about that, but that's what's happening with adults. Howard Hendricks often taught, if you want to raise a healthy children, have a healthy marriage. If you want your children to read the Bible, let them see you reading the Bible. If you want them to see how you do a conflict as a husband and wife, do conflict in front of your kids in a healthy way. So they see mom and dad disagree. They love each other. They work to a conclusion. And ostensibly today, none of that exists. Yeah, it's true. And so it's easy to blame the local church, but really the burden is on the shoulders of the individual. If I'm going to call myself a follower of Christ, then I need to know what that means. And in the book, I talk about the six things that Jesus said to define what a disciple is. He made it pretty clear. You know, in John 8, he said, you'll be my disciple if you obey my commands. In John 13, he said, you'll be my disciple if you love other disciples. In John 15, he said, you'll be my disciple if you produce a lot of spiritual fruit. And then in Luke 14, he took a different tact. He said, you cannot be my disciple unless, first of all, you love God so much. It seems that all the people that you think you love, it appears almost as if you hate them compared to how much you love right. God. You know, and then he went on in Luke 14 and he said, you know, and you cannot be my disciple unless you pick up and carry your cross which in Roman society meant, you know what, you're submitting to authority. Who is the authority? God is the only real authority. You know, and then later on in that same chapter, Luke 14, third thing, he said, you know, and you've got to surrender everything to follow God's agenda for your life. So with those six things in mind, being a disciple, I mean, that's what an individual has to go back to. It's not about, yeah, I won the attendance pin this year at church. doesn't matter. There's no place in the scripture where it says, you know, you're going to do better if you attend church more often. In fact, it doesn't even think of church as a thing that you go to. You know, it talks about it as a community, a living body of people who are allowing the Holy Spirit to reform them to be more Christ-like. That's a whole different conception than we have today. So if we can get back to what did Jesus think about when he was thinking of go make disciples mm-hmm. and recognize that that's my responsibility I got to be one before I can help other people to become one. You know, it's the thing that I wrote about in the book Revolution. Jesus never called us to go to church. He called us to be the church. That being the case, you know, let's figure out what that means. And it's all about being a disciple. I love that book in the sense that, again, anecdotally, I've been preaching for years, George. Pastors do have it wrong. They're building churches and want someone else to make disciples. Jesus said, make disciples and I'll build my church. (laughs) We've had it wrong for decades. So anyway, let's talk some about these things in your book. You say 
you have about half of them rather don't believe these kinds of things. For example, Jesus Christ sinned while he was on earth. People actually believe this. Yeah, and actually that's nothing new. I mean, I've been measuring that for probably 40 years. Now, we have seen the proportion of people who accept that concept grow. And unfortunately, one of the consequences of that is it means that most parents believe that, and therefore they're passing that on to their kids. What we're finding that's most discouraging to me is that a shocking number of pastors now believe that. And so when you find that only 12% of children's pastors have a biblical worldview, seven out of eight don't have a biblical worldview, I mean, a harsh way of putting it is it's more dangerous to take your child to church than it is not to take them to church and to try to do something good in your home in terms of managing the media that they're exposed to. You're better off doing that. So, you know, we even look at senior pastors, you know, 41% of them have a biblical worldview, 27 or 28% of teaching pastors which you only find at our larger churches, which right. tend to be the churches that have more influence, well, they're, you know, 27%, 28% have a biblical worldview. Again, that means most of them are not consistently teaching what's in the Bible. They're teaching these other syncretistic ideas. So maybe the church isn't really, uh, the local church in America isn't really the solution. That's a terrifying commentary. Oh, goodness. Well, it goes back to seminaries. You know, you look at who we're letting in, how we're teaching them, what we're producing out of that system, how we're credentialing them, how the local church just accepts at faith value the fact that— And that's the frog in the kettle, George. As John Hanna said, we were educated in a time no longer exists. You know, and the way I was trained wasn't infallible or perfect, but there were benchmarks. You had to know the languages. You had to think— Theologically, you had to be able to work through each book of the Bible. I mean, the notion that four years of seminary covered every book of the Bible, shouldn't that be like basic 101? Of course. It's striking. Now we have so many subset degrees, cross-cultural, counseling, women's studies. You know, Great, great. Knock yourself out. Where are the people being trained to open the book and say, thus says the Lord. This has been my angst. Anyway, okay, land the plane for me, Dr. Barna. Give me some hope. Because <laughs> I'm discouraged beyond my usefulness. <laughs> ah, you are now my disciple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I put up with this every day. I've been doing it for 40-some years. Yeah, the hope is in Jesus, always has been. You know, and the fact that he told us the gates of hell will not prevail. Mm. The fact that, you know, throughout the scripture, what we see is that when God chooses to change a culture— It's because what the scriptures call a remnant of people have said that they are not going to turn their back on God and his ways and his word. They are going to fully commit themselves to that. And God said, okay, I can use you. It's going to be a minority of people. We have this American way of thinking that we need to have a majority. We've got to have bigger numbers before we can actually do what God called us to do. There is no place in the scripture where God ever had a majority of any culture that we look at where God's people were planted there and empowered by the Holy Spirit and turned that place around. And it was because that remnant was willing to go out and do the work of God. And so if it's going to happen in America, 
It's not because we're going to add another 5,000 megachurches. It's going to happen because maybe we'll add another 5,000 disciples who are willing to totally sell out to the ways and purposes of God. And they don't mind if they die in the process. They don't care how much they're persecuted. They are 100%. Their hair is lit on fire for Jesus. And every day when they get out of bed, they're just thinking about, here I am, Lord, send me. You know, the whole Moses Aaron thing. That's the way that we've got to think about it. If we can, you know, find those people, encourage those people, give those people a pathway to go out and do what God put them here to do, God can save America through that group of people. And hopefully you and I and our family and friends will be among them. Yeah. But again, every day we got to get back on our knees, got to confess our sins anew. We got to let God know, apart from you, I have nothing. Nothing. But I'm here for you. And if you can use nothing to make something, I know you can because you're perfect. You're all powerful. You're all knowing. Use me in that process, Lord. That's why I'm here. You know, it's striking. You mentioned the Western mindset, and this is another area that's been a peeve of mine is, you know, Western Christianity is really America and then Jesus. And it's the, you know, bigger, better, newer, more. I call it if then theology. If I do this, then this will follow. Prosperity theology, of course, is the heresy of that. You know, if you do this, God will bless you. There's some truth in that, but not the way it's presented. Frog in the kettle, back to George Barnett, we've been frog in the kettle. We are in a culture that's accommodated, that's tolerated, that worships unity, and truth just seems to be jettisoned. I was talking to Christopher Ewan the other day about his newest book, Holy Sexuality. He said, Michael, we have to go back further. Your first question is the wrong question. He said, we have to define truth. And I was like, it's come to that. Oh, yeah. It's come to that. We don't know what truth is, and it's all subjective. You mentioned it earlier, true to myself. It's kind of interesting on the one hand that it's so bad, how much worse will it get? <laughs> but, you know, I think America's days are over. What about you, Dr. Barnum? I don't know, because I don't know the mind of God. I mean, God may want true. to use the United States as a demonstration platform where he takes that remnant and says, okay, let's get busy. And through that small number of people, renewal and revival do happen. Could happen, absolutely. That's what I'd like to see. That's what I'm working towards seeing. If and I we don't pray see for. it, yeah, you know, so be it. That's God's will. But I want to be available to Him. I know you want to be available to Him to be used in that kind of a moral and spiritual revolution in America. That's not human centric. It's not something that we contrived. It's something that he wrote about, you know, through his yeah. word more than 2,000 years ago. So, you know, let's just be true to that. Let's us be the exemplars of that truth and, you know, not want the approval of culture Amen. more than we want God's approval. Yeah. Part of the reason that I've been able to stick with this for 40-some years, despite being beaten up by the church, is the fact that I don't live for their approval. I live for God's yeah. approval. And I really believe that I'm doing what he called me to do, what he made me to do, what he's gifted me to do. I'm doing my best to try to represent it, I think, the way he wants me to. I know it's not perfect, but, you know, I'm doing my best. And that being the case, it's like, all right, yeah, whip me, talk about me, call me names, you know, burn my books. They end them at Christian school libraries in some cases. I get that. That's fine. 
do what you got to do. I got to do what I got to do. That's what God's called me to be. You know, it's interesting. Years ago, I learned, you know, God wants me to be faithful, not successful. And it's very liberating if you understand your wiring, your gifting, what your inclinations, you know, how God might use that. You can put your head on the pillow at night going, yeah, I'm a big sinner and I fail a thousand times every day. But for God, I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to encourage, I'm trying to disciple, whatever it is. There's a freedom in that, yeah. you know, because I, I measuring myself against the next church, the next author, that's maddening. And, you know, it won't. Anyway, I'm prattling. Raising Spiritual Champions, Dr. Barna's latest book. As always, you can find out lots of information about our guest in the show notes, and we appreciate you. If you enjoyed this interview, give it a thumbs up, give it a like, and even better, share it with some friends. Uh, stir the pot a little bit. Say, you listen to this uh, crazy Michael Easley and one of his guests who's probably as crazy, Dr. George Barna. Have a good conversation with your small group, with your husband, wife, your friends. We want to provoke you to do good in the name of Christ. Dr. Barna, as always, thanks for your time and look forward to our next chance to talk. Me too. Thanks, Michael. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.